0: Many of you know that I'm kind of in love with Japan. I lived there in my 20s for nearly three years. I studied the language intensely, and because it offered such a different point of view from what I grew up with, it informed how I think. This episode is dedicated to Japanese psychology, and procrastinators, listen up. It is also dedicated to taking action. As you'll hear from my guest, we have on average around 30,000 days of life to deal with this reality, and the fact that all days are precious, there have been some great contributions to the field coming from Japan, and you'll get to hear and learn about therapies you may have never heard of, specifically Morita and Nikon therapies. And many people have been loving Marie Kondo's work, yes, it's pronounced Marie, and they've been loving her Netflix special and have been ridding their homes of anything that didn't bring them a spark of joy, as she so brilliantly puts it. Her thinking too is in line with this way of thinking as I see it. To make these concepts super accessible to my listeners, I found a man who has been studying and teaching Japanese psychology for over three decades, and he has presented on the topic internationally multiple times. Greg Kretsch is the author and founder and executive director of the Todo Institute, a nonprofit organization in Vermont dedicated to the study of Japanese psychology. Greg is the author of multiple books on this topic, including one on Nikon, which Publishers Weekly has described as illuminating and instructive. In addition, he wrote a book that has been read with overwhelmingly positive reviews by a very wide audience called The Art of Taking Action lessons from Japanese psychology. So listen in as Greg and I get into the art of taking action and lessons from Japanese psychology. Greg Kretsch, a hearty welcome
1: to Super Psyched. Thank you, Adam. It's nice to be with you today.
0: Right on. I'm so excited to talk about one of the things I care about most deeply. And one of the things that actually led me to live in Japan for nearly three years, and that is Japanese psychology in general. I remember getting off the airplane, and perhaps you had a similar experience, and I'll need to hear your origin story. But I remember getting off the airplane, basically informed by my love of sushi, thinking, oh, great, the country of sushi, fantastic, and the best food in the world. Except there was so much more. Mm -hmm. It was as if I had left a dimension known to me in the West. I'd been to various Western countries and I saw something entirely new, almost felt as though I was tripping. It was so different and so fascinating that I immediately knew this was my next thing. Like I needed to learn the language. I needed to learn about the culture. I needed to live there Mm -hmm. and see what was Western culture, what was Eastern culture, what was just human in general, but perhaps hiding behind kind of an exterior that just appeared to be different. And I'm wondering if you could just, before we even get started, how did,
1: let's hear about your Japan origin story. Well, I had been to Japan a few different times before I actually even discovered anything about Japanese psychology. And I had been there on what I would kind of consider at this point, spiritual experimental visits, because I was studying Buddhism at the time with several Buddhist teachers. And so I was really going to Japan to kind of experience Buddhism in Japan. So one of my favorite trips was really just going to these different mountains and kind of climbing these mountains. They weren't mountains like Mount Everest or anything. They were mountains that you could just walk up on a path, but they were spiritual pilgrimages for, my, for me. And so my experience there was really just discovering kind of where Buddhism had come from, given that it was so new in the United States, and that it had been existing for thousands of years in Japan. And so that was really a, an eye-opening experience, kind of seeing the, the temples. And I remember actually on Mount Hiei near Kyoto, you mm-hmm. may be familiar with that, basically hiking up this path. And there's these people called the Marathon Monks of Mount Hiei who run forever. Are you familiar with that? These, no. There are these monks and part of their spiritual training is to run around the mountain. And there's a, another guy who is behind them, like with a stick that kind of keeps them moving. And I just kind of happened to cross paths with one of them when I was walking up the mountain that day. But it really made so much of the ideas and stories about Buddhism that I had been studying, you know, real to actually be there and see kind of Buddhism, which had aged, so to speak, for so many centuries.
0: And the richness that accompanies that age and the depth. Mm -hmm. I've heard many people from the West describe their own felt experience with Japan. And I, I tend to agree with virtually all of them just how absolutely fascinating. Like I can actually, I can say without any question, every day I lived there, I learned something new, generally multiple new things. Mm -hmm. And it was always fascinating. Mm -hmm. So I'm so glad to geek out with you. To the topic of Japanese psychology, one of the things that you actually note is the notion of 30,000 days, that we've got these 30,000 days. And I'm wondering if you talk about 30,000 days, as well as the name of the Toto Institute, how that came about.
1: Okay. I'll tell the Toto Institute explanation first. So, the name of our organization is the Toto Institute. We're a, an education and retreat center here in Vermont. And in Vermont, we're often referred to as the To Do Institute because that first word, Toto, is spelled T O D O. And to do is actually pretty consistent with one of the psychological approaches, Morita Therapy, which is really sometimes referred to as the psychology of action. So, it's a pretty good fit. But the real name is the Toto Institute, and Todo means in English something like Eastern Way. So it's like the To in Tokyo, and then the Do in like Judo or Kendo, which is the way. But Toto is also a Spanish word, which means all or everything. So a word actually has a meaning in three different languages. In terms of 30,000 days, this first came up, I'm trying to remember if I, if I can take it back to a particular year, but I think it was right around the period of maybe The World Trade Center of 9-11 situation. And we were trying, we were changing the name of the quarterly publication that we did. And we were, we had asked people for suggestions. And we have a membership. We'd asked our members, do you have any suggestions? And there was nothing that really struck me. And I was reading a book actually by a an art professor at the Art Institute. And it's called a book, a wonderful book called How to Use Your Eyes. Really wonderful book about detail and paying attention and uh, written by an art professor. And in that book, he has a chapter in which he talks about planning to go out on the lawn and just look at grass for a few hours. Just look at grass. And I'm not an artist myself, but I imagine that's the kind of thing that artists might do. But then he started thinking, oh, I'm so busy and I've got this and I've got appointments at the end of the day and I'm behind on this. So he started thinking, oh, maybe I shouldn't do that. Maybe I just don't have time today. So he started thinking, well, I wonder how many Days I have left when I would have time to do mm. that, right? And he calculated it. He looked at how many thirty thousand was a, a rough estimate of how many days one has to live, at least in America or Western society. And he subtracted first. And if anyone wants to do this, you can do this. You subtract the number of days you've already lived. And for some of us, that's a vast, <laughs> a vast majority of the days were allotted. So for me, I'm I think of it as in a basketball analogy. I'm already in the fourth quarter. I don't right? mm. in the final quarter and a number of us are, but he subtracted the number of days he had already lived. Then he subtracted days like the the winter in Chicago, which is quite long where there's no green grass to actually look at, days when it's really raining, which he could get some information on from the weather data. And what he had left was actually a relatively small number of days compared to what he would have guessed. And so that inspired him to go out and look at grass that afternoon. I love that essay, but I really took away from it this title, 30,000 Days. And I find death, rather than being morbid, to be inspirational. And so I'll give you an example of that. Another way I frame the 30,000 days at my age is how many seasons, like this, we're just starting summer, right? How many summers do I have left, right? And it's a very different number than it was when I was starting to go into Japan in my 20s. So I have a limited number of summers left. And when I just have that thought, that reality that I have a limited number of summers and it's not a huge number, when I go outside either to walk the dog or to walk through the yard or we live surrounded by a preserve so I can go hike up in the woods, right? I pay closer attention to the buds on the trees and the little maple helicopters that come down sometimes Mm. and the wildflowers and, and watching them progress from being born to dying. And I look at nature with very, very captured attention, knowing that I don't know how many more opportunities I'm going to have to see that. Mm. And so, so for me, knowing my number and that concept of 30,000 days inspires me to really connect with the world. And it's not just nature. It could be my 25 year old daughter coming over to go for a walk or have dinner with us. And how much of my energy is going towards her and how much of my energy is going towards looking at a phone or something like that. So that concept is a constant reminder that my time is limited, that there there is a number of days. It's probably not going to be 30,000. It might be quite a bit less. It might be a little bit more, but there is an actual number that will mark the end of my life. And when I realize that I'm inspired to really kind of connect with real life, rather than my thoughts about it or the technology or my daydreaming or any of those kinds of things.
0: As you're speaking, I'm thinking about two great thinkers, one whose name I may butcher and I apologize to any Portuguese speakers out there, but that would be Paulo Coelho, the Mm -hmm. author of The Alchemist. And I heard him say in an interview that La Muerta is I guess the way he said it in, in Portuguese. I hopefully I know it's in Spanish is always death is always the passenger in his car as he goes through life is mm-hmm. grateful to her because mm-hmm. she keeps him in this, that place of meaning. And then, of course, I think of Viktor Frankl, the great existential psychologist who talks about us as being essentially homo symbolicus, not just homo sapiens, but beings that crave meaning. And it seems like your recognition of the ephemeral nature of life allows you to tune into the helicopter spirals of leaves falling off the tree, little buds, the things that you might not look at. It's later than you think. So let's really enjoy the grass. And it's one thing to say that it's another thing to do it and to recognize perhaps the non serving activities that we may spend too much time doing, like Mm -hmm. on our phone rather than attending to your daughter who's right in front of you. Let's talk about procrastination, something that you talk about a fair amount Mm -hmm. and its various forms. I'd like to just hear what your how you see procrastination. Like, why does it show up for us? from your perspective and how can we best deal with it?
1: Well, before I got into this material that moved from Illinois, where I grew up to the Washington DC area, and it was my first solo apartment. I was very excited. And I remember one evening going into the kitchen and making myself some dinner and everything was ready. And I went to put it on a plate so I could eat it. And I had no plates left they were all dirty in the sink (laughs) everything was dirty in the sink and so i didn't have a plate i didn't have any utensils they were all just sitting in a big pile in the sink which was even more embarrassing because (laughs) i had a dishwasher in that apartment (laughs) but the reason was i actually never felt like washing dishes I, i never had a feeling like oh i think i'll wash the dishes now that'll be fun or that'll feel nice so i just didn't do it so now i was faced with the fact that i didn't have any dishes and i had dinner ready and i did the next best thing, which is I, I ran out to a convenience store and bought paper plates. <laughs> but I think it's an example of... A good example. Using our being feeling driven, being driven by our feeling states. And I think that's what happens with procrastination a lot is that when we're using our feelings as the director of our play to make those decisions, if we don't feel like doing something, we don't do it. And there's a lot of things that we need to do in our life, including some very important things that... We're not necessarily going to feel like doing. We don't necessarily, we're not necessarily going to feel like exercising, even though we need to do it. We're not necessarily going to feel like doing our taxes, right? Even though we need to do it. I often have done a lot of writing in my life, but I rarely sit down to write when I feel like writing. Right. And so we need to develop the capacity to do something without actually feeling like we want to do it or feeling motivated or feeling enthusiastic. And so Marita therapy offers a whole different approach, which is rather than trying to fix our feeling state so that we do feel motivated or enthusiastic or confident, we just simply take whatever feelings we have with us and we do what we need to do. And we have a, again, another maxim that we call lead with the body. If it's about, for me, going up in my studio and practicing piano, I don't feel like doing it my body basically takes a lead. It knows how to get to the studio. It knows how to sit down at the piano and turn the on button on, yep. the digital piano. And those feelings of I'm tired, I really just want to watch a movie, come with me. In other words, the idea is this Japanese term, arugamama, which is to accept things as they are. And here we're applying that to our feeling state. We accept the fact that I'm feeling tired. I'm feeling just that I have no energy. And I feel like I just want to sit on the couch and watch something or maybe read a book. And I take that feeling state with me and my body takes me up to the studio and I sit down and I turn the digital piano on, put my headphones on. And for me, the example I'm giving, I would say eight or nine times out of 10, after I've played two songs, I actually feel like playing the piano.
0: That's brilliant. By doing it, you begin to feel like doing it.
1: Yeah. Now, not always. Again, and if somebody wants that to be a 100% thing, then you haven't made that shift from being feeling centered. You're still looking for that feeling. But the fact is that in most cases, if I make that change using my behavior or my body, in most cases, it influences my feelings. And I remember one day coming across a quote by William James, which could have easily come from Morita. He basically said, I can only paraphrase the quote, but he said that we use our behavior, which is much more under our control than our feelings. Right. And we essentially lead with our behavior, which then are more likely to influence our feelings. And that's really almost exactly what Morita therapy suggests, that we use our behavior where we can have some control or a lot of control to do those things Many times our feelings come along and they kind of buy into the process and sometimes they don't and that's okay too. Sometimes I play a couple of songs and I just feel like going to bed and I stop and sometimes I didn't feel like going up there and 1130 at night and I've been in the studio for two hours playing and I lost track of time. So the idea is from a procrastination standpoint is that we need to develop the capacity to be able to do things without feeling like we want to do them. It's really very simple to talk about. It's very hard to actually develop that capacity. And I see it as a skill. And so our ability to take action when we don't feel like it is the taking action side of that principle. And our ability to not take action when we do feel like it is the other side of that coin, which comes in handy when we're trying not to eat sweets or we're dieting or we feel so angry that we feel like we want to wring somebody's neck but we don't act (laughs) on that feeling and thought, right? So we have restraint and we have taking action, and they actually both are coming from the same principle, which is that principle that's based in purpose, and that has to do with essentially controlling our behavior and not making our feeling state the director of our play. You
0: know, I love that idea. It's almost like we have an accelerator and a brake pedal. And regardless of how we're feeling, we move towards the target of what we're going for. Let's talk about how Marita therapy actually got you to lean into a part of yourself that you might not have expressed in this lifetime during these 30,000 days had you not been informed of it. And to, I think, great pleasure for yourself, your family, and certainly the people who get to watch you play the keyboards and sing in your Allman Brothers tribute band. somehow this philosophy, this version of Japanese psychology informed you to
1: Vastly improve your life. Well, you know, they say that the fear of public speaking is actually a more prominent fear than the fear of death itself. And so the equivalent of that in the music world is getting up on stage and performing. And I had been playing piano since I was a kid. I was in bands when I was in college and after college. But for most of my adult life, I've been playing in the living room and I decided. few years ago that I was going to at least try to start by getting up during a blues jam and getting up on stage and actually performing at a club. And so I needed to do a lot of practice because I needed to learn how to play blues in various different keys. And of course, I put it off until the last blues jam of the year in December. I went there with my wife. My kids who were in their teens actually were with us. And you sign up on a, a card for a particular instrument. I put keyboards and then so I'm sitting there with, with my wife and my daughters and suddenly they call out my name and they say, Greg Creech, is he here? You want to come up and do some keyboards? And of course, this, I get this anxiety, adrenaline rush going through my whole body and I suddenly feel my palms sweating and my forehead sweating and my heart is palpitating. So I'm having all of these anxiety symptoms. But in Rita therapy, one of the things that we teach people is to coexist with anxiety rather than try to fix your anxiety. But so here was a real test for me. So I had to figure out how am I gonna get from the table to the stage and sit down in front of the keyboard while I'm sweating and shaking and my heart is, is beating rapidly and I'm having all these thoughts like I'm gonna make a complete fool of myself. And so I get up and while I'm feeling this way, I start taking one step after another toward the stage, continuing to have these thoughts, continuing to have this anxiety. But uh, we have this, this phrase, lead with the body. So my body's kind of taking me where I need to go and my mind is doing its best to try to resist it. And I got up on stage and I sat down in front of the keyboard, which I had never played that particular keyboard before. And what they do in a jam, by the way, is that they will announce a song and they'll tell you what key it's in. And it may be a song you've never heard before, but you then have about three seconds before you're expected to start playing with the band that's up there. Mostly people that you have never played with before. And so I sat down and three seconds later they said, oh, let's play Every day I have the blues in the key of G. And then in about three seconds the music starts and I put my hand on the keyboard and I'm playing blues in the key of G. And what I found, which is very often very true, is that as my attention got absorbed in what I was doing, which was playing music, my anxiety dissipated. And so one of the most interesting quotes from Morita the psychiatrist, when I first studied Morita therapy, one of the most interesting quotes I found was this quote that said, anxiety is misdirected attention. Mm. Anxiety is misdirected attention. In other words, if you're experiencing anxiety, it means your attention is in the wrong place. And by shifting my attention towards playing music, my attention shifts away from my internal experience. And in that moment, I'm not anxious because I'm not aware that I'm anxious. And so marita therapy has a very different paradigm of whether it's anxiety or shyness or depression which is that all those experiences are simply moment-by-moment moment experience. So one moment I'm feeling anxious because I'm experiencing these anxious thoughts about messing up while I'm playing the song, and the next moment I'm playing the song, and in that moment I'm not anxious. So this work really got me up on stage for the first time in decades, and, and from there I went on to play in bands, and now I'm playing keyboards in an Ollman Brothers tribute band, which has a wonderful group of musicians, and will play before hundreds and sometimes thousands of people. And I still feel anxious. I still have the experience of anxiety before a performance, but I know that I can cope with my anxiety and just kind of bring it along. And I know that once we start playing, that I'll get focused on, on the music and then the anxiety just kind of fades into the background.
0: I love the idea of misdirected attention. And I think it's brilliant. We often think about these cliches and it's going to sound somewhat pablomy as I say this, but it's actually quite deep. Everybody knows the axiom, dance like no one's watching. And if you think about it, if you're dancing like no one's watching, we are directing our attention to ourselves. We are not directing it to the perceptions and the fears that we might have around how we might be judged by others. Mm -hmm. And I recently watched Chris Hemsworth in Disney Plus series, walking a beam at 900 feet above ground. He had harnesses. So even if he fell, wouldn't be catastrophic. But It was pretty terrifying. And of course, his attention, when he was focusing on his steps, he was able to walk. When he was focused on reducing his heart rate, he was able to walk. But when he was focused on how high up he was, his heart rate would go up. Mm -hmm. So I love this idea of misdirected attention. Jerry Seinfeld even talks about the idea of the difference between performing in front of five people and 5,000 people is not all that great if you are willing to perceive it as if you are swimming in water where it doesn't matter if it's five feet deep or 5,000 feet deep. But if you focus on the fact that it's 5,000 feet deep as you're swimming, you will choke. If you focus on just the strokes, you will continue swimming. And so I think Marita really hit on something. One of the things we also know through studies of psychology is anxiety will never go away. We will never ever get rid of anxiety, but we can learn how to dance with it and live with it. Give a public talk with it, and to bring up Jerry Seinfeld once again, to your point, he has an old joke of we'd rather be the one in the casket than the one giving the eulogy because we fear death so much. I mean, I'm sorry, we fear, sorry, Paul. We fear public speaking so much that we'd rather die than do it some in many cases. And yeah, it's misdirected attention spot on,
1: yeah, and I think that a whole arena of attention is very much at the heart of Morita's work, and I think it's one of the most some of the most radical ideas that really come from that. And so when I'm teaching or working with people, how to skillfully use our attention becomes really a very fundamental teaching principle in terms of people learning how to cope with challenging experiences and challenging internal experiences. And I think the most important distinction that I introduce in terms of attention is the distinction between self-focused attention and attention to the world around us. And that's one of, I think, the most important shifts that people make if they actually want to work with Japanese psychology. And so self-focused attention is when our attention is on our thoughts, our feelings, or body sensations, right? That we would call that self-focused attention. And attention, which is to the world around us or engagement in the world, is essentially everything else. It's noticing the colors of the flowers and the roses and the shades, different shades of red on the petals. It's noticing the texture of those rose petals it's noticing the sound of a hummingbird that's kind of flying behind you that you can't see, but you can hear that little humming sound. So when we're using our sensory experience to connect with the world, then that's this outward focused attention. And several decades ago, kind of before the internet, I did spend a couple of days at Middlebury College Library researching self-focused attention to see what research had been done in the West that might either confirm or essentially disagree with the Japanese view of this, at least the Mori therapy view of this. And there wasn't a lot, but there was actually enough. And the consistent conclusion of that research is that self-focused attention is associated with virtually every psychological disorder there is, right? Whether it be schizophrenia or paranoia or shyness or anxiety or depression, a heightened degree of self-focused attention And at the extreme, that heightened degree becomes hypochondria. We become so focused on any subtle changes in our body experience, right? This muscle is a little sore today, or eye is a little blurry today. And in hypochondria, what happens is we become so aware of any subtle changes. And then, of course, we begin that process of uh, internal thoughts and feelings in which, oh my God, I'm going to die, or I'm going to go blind, or I'm going to have to have my arm amputated. But it's that shift to outward focused attention that frees us essentially from those experiences, not on any permanent basis, because I would also agree, you can't get rid of anxiety in any permanent way, but you can get rid of anxiety in a moment by simply paying attention to something besides your anxiety. So I would argue that if I have a broken arm, that bone is broken regardless of what I'm paying attention to. But if I have a thought, which sometimes happens when I'm coming back after a trip that I'm going to get to my house and it's burned down. And if I have that thought and I pay attention to the road that I'm on or little kids playing ball next to the road in that moment, I'm not anxious. And that and my anxiety is cured, not cured in any permanent way, but cured in that particular moment of time.
0: Yeah, I think that's brilliant. And I think that what is really being called for is is balance, that yin-yang. I mean, if we are overly self-focused, we become ruminative, we can't escape almost a narcissistic pull, a self-absorption that is associated with anxiety and depression and a host of other pathologies that we don't want. And yet, if we have a sore throat, we need to notice that. Or if, <laughs> if we need to go pee, maybe good idea to notice that. And if we have an emotion, because we are possibly about to be somehow duped, it's important to notice that intuitive thing. So it's guessing that Morita would never say, lose yourself entirely. <laughs> but he would probably say something to the effect of, There are times when we can repurpose that, and there are times when we need to actually transcend in order to accomplish what we want to accomplish while anxious.
1: Yeah, I think it's a question of seeing these skills of self-focused attention and outward-focused attention as different skills that have to be applied in relevant situations, right? So if I'm meditating, I want to be focusing on my breath. Mm-hmm. P- part of my practice is to be able to focus and watch my breath. But if I'm taking a walk in the woods or I'm taking a walk on the road with my dog, I'm sure some of our audiences had that experience where you go out for a walk and you come back, you realize you, you didn't notice one thing the whole time because right. you were basically caught up in that internal dialogue. And what I find is that virtually almost everybody I work with has much more skill at self-focused attention, at noticing their thoughts, their feeling states, than they do at paying attention to the world around them. And so a lot of the work that we do in a training setting is giving people exercises that help essentially strengthen that skill of paying attention to what's going on around you. One of those exercises, which have you ever been in a Japanese tea ceremony? I have. Yeah. So when I attended a, Japanese tea ceremony for the first time, I thought you had to be completely silent while they were going through this ritual of making the tea and serving the tea. But I found out that you can actually speak, but the general rule is you can only speak about what's in the room, right? You can only speak about what's actually present in the room or in your experience at that moment. So you can ask, Mm -hmm. what does that calligraphy on the scroll mean? What does that actually mean in English? Could you translate for me? Or this is a really interesting teacup. Does this have a history to it? So you can ask questions that are relevant to what's actually going on in that moment. And so we'll, we have exercises, for instance, we have a, we call a tea ceremony walk, where we'll have a group and we'll go for a walk, hike in the woods or walk on the road for 20 minutes. And we have that same rule. You're only allowed to talk about what is going on in your sensory experience at that moment. So you can talk about seeing some red-winged blackbirds sitting on the electrical wires, but you can't talk about politics and you can't talk about whether The Los Angeles Dodgers are gonna win the pennant this year. (laughs) So you have to stay focused on what is actually present in your life at that moment. And when we try to do that, it's amazing how difficult it is to do because our thoughts almost, you know we'll see a red-winged blackbird and it'll remind us of another bird that we saw when we were on a trip to Italy and suddenly we're off someplace else and we're not in the present moment of our life. So this idea of basically keeping our attention focused on what's going on around us And keeping our speech focused as a reflection of that attention is very challenging, but it's a great practice for us to just kind of stay present with our real life. The Zen teacher Charlotte Joko Beck had actually a term that she referred to, all of these kinds of dialogues and thoughts that are going back and forth in our head. And she called it our substitute life. Well, our real life, my real life right now is talking to you, is looking at my computer screen, is sunlight that's coming through the windows and in the room that I'm in, this is my real life, right? But the thoughts in my head, like, I wonder if the Wi-Fi is going to go out. <laughs> or <laughs> it's really hot today. And as soon as, this, as, soon as we finish here, I'm going to turn on the fan because I'm sweating. So all these things that might go into my mind, those are not my real life. Those are just thoughts and ideas and dial, internal dialogue. But my real life is that I have this actual bottle of vitamin water to drink. This is my real life. So when I drink it, drinking this water is my real life. And I think this idea, and we like to characterize it as moving from thinking to experiencing, right? So you move from getting caught up in your thinking to actually trying to get caught up in the experience of life itself.
0: I think that's brilliant. And one of the best definitions I've ever heard of mindfulness is being aware of what's going on while it's going on. And this idea of talking about what's in the room during tea ceremony is so brilliant. Think about sometimes when I'm having a delicious meal, and somebody starts talking about something that is actually unpleasant, it definitely takes me out of the meal. And I think it's incumbent upon us to find ways to kind of, I think there was a Sufi poet who said something, either lose your mind and come to your senses, or free your mind and come to your senses. And just Mm. to allow yourself a moment of just really being in a thing fully. Mm. And I think we're afraid of it, because there is something profoundly intimate either with that thing, with ourselves and with the other. And there's an old tale I heard from a meditation teacher about a, I'm gonna say like an 18th century nun. And she was enjoying, as the story goes, partridge. And she was enjoying it so much that one of her one of her colleagues said, shouldn't you be reserving that for our Lord and savior? And she said, I give plenty to our Lord and savior, but when I'm with partridge, I'm with partridge.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I think that's a great story. Is a great I think there's story. something about really being with a thing when we're with it. And I think that mm-hmm. many of us are actually terrified of the intimacy. I think that that is part of it. Kind of going back to this idea of just really, really allowing yourself to do a thing. If I was to ask a very experienced baseball player to go back to your Dodgers idea to think about swinging about while he's swinging about. <laughs> He would not probably connect as well as he would if he was Mm -hmm. not thinking about it and just doing it. Mm -hmm. Uh, We all kind of know that intuitively. And there's this study that kind of relates to this as well. That was conveyed to me by a colleague. Apparently, two groups of people were singing karaoke. I can't say karaoke, uh, especially to you. But (laughs) karaoke is how it's pronounced, folks. I don't know how we got karaoke out of those letters. (laughs) But they were asked to do this. and. One group was told to say to the audience beforehand, I'm nervous, as they felt the butterflies in the stomach and they performed. The second group was asked to feel the butterflies in their stomach, but to say, I'm so excited. And each of these singers was rated, and the group who decided to that their Butterflies meant that they were excited. They got subjectively better reviews from the audience. And from that, I, I think we can infer at least in part that we do better when we interpret the data as something that will assist us in our performance. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of what you're speaking to as well, at least a next door neighbor, or a cousin of what you're speaking to. And I just think this is fantastic. We, we all are going to experience butterflies. We're all going to experience anxiety how can we purpose it so that it will serve us so that we can perform with it
1: yeah and i think it's an interesting way to look at anxiety is that it's it's energy it's a Mm. type of energy and so how we direct that energy has a lot to do with our experience and also with our success or failure in a situation so if i have anxiety and i'm on stage and I basically direct my attention inward so that I'm focusing on the anxiety and, and the internal dialogue goes something like, why am I so anxious? <laughs> so, and then the next round is, how come I'm so anxious? All these other musicians don't seem to be anxious. And then the next round is, why am I the kind of person who's so concerned about what other people are doing instead of just like trying to focus on myself? And it just keeps going. And there's more to therapy. They use a term called ware which has to do with this cycle of just getting more and more drawn into your internal dialogue. And when we do that, we're directing our attention inward and the chances of my actually being able to play well in terms of music or to do anything well in terms of what I'm here to do, go down as I do that. As my attention focuses inside, it's not focusing on my playing, right? But if we take that attention, that anxiety, and we see it as attentional energy, and we move it out into the world. So I use that anxiety before getting on stage to practice. I have a concert tomorrow, and so I practice for three hours the night before, and I practice in part because I feel so anxious about the concert. So now I'm taking a constructive, have a constructive response, and I'm using that anxiety energy to actually fuel my practice, which in fact can help me play better, right? For sure. Or even in the middle of a concert, using that as energy for playing, Putting my energy into the playing or into the singing instead of putting it into my internal dialogue. So so one of the interesting things about anxiety, and one of the reasons that I always suggest we shouldn't try to get rid of anxiety is that it's much more important to learn how to use that en- energy in a way that actually works for us rather than against us. I love
0: that. Well, this has been so much fun, Greg. I have a final question for you, and you are going to answer my magical question, and that is this. If you had the powers to confer upon all humanity one skill or insight that would dramatically change the lives of the individual, and perhaps even by ripple effects society at large, Mm -hmm. would that skill or insight be? And how do you imagine it would affect the individual as well as perhaps society at large?
1: The skill that I would magically confer upon the global population of this world is the ability to put oneself in another person's shoes. And that really takes us to the other side of Japanese psychology to the Nikon side, which we won't be able to talk about today. But that ability to essentially be in the world and realize that I'm not the center of the world. There's not just all these other people. There's your cat and there's the planet and there's trees and there's water. And the world is just full of other sentient beings. And to be able to go through and see, to experience, I wonder what it's like to be in Adam's situation today. Or I wonder what it's like to be in my wife's situation today. Or I wonder what it's like to be in the situation of the person who has to make the decision about whether to cancel a 10,000-person concert because there's a 70% chance of rain, (laughs) or to put ourselves in the shoes of someone who's trying to have a sandwich in the middle of Ukraine right now, not knowing if a missile's going to hit any minute. And I think if we could all do that, if we could all do it in a somewhat successful way, the degree of compassion and kindness and love in the world would just expand exponentially. And I think we would find that our experience of living in this world would be very different.
0: What a beautifully phrased description of what could be just called empathy. It's as if you redefined it in that moment. And I love the way you said it. And Greg, this has been so much fun getting to geek out with you. And (laughs) I knew it would be fun. I was telling my wife last night how much I was enjoying getting to know you and your work. And I'm so glad my listeners get to benefit from your wisdom.
1: Well, it's really, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And and most of the time, I wasn't even aware that we're doing a podcast. I'm just sitting here (laughs) after detailing this conversation. And I think we both have this kind of background, you having lived in Japan and my having done a lot of my training and and a Buddhist practice in Japan. So it's kind of a common ground. But I, as I mentioned to you, kind of when we were in warm-up mode yesterday, you know, I love the array of themes and people that you have on your podcast. And that it's not just talking about mental health, it's talking about life. And we see ourselves as holistic beings, not just as psychological beings. And so I really love what you're doing. I feel honored to be part of it. And I hope that you continue to have many opportunities to do this for years to come. (laughs) Oh, kokoro kara arigato gozaimasu. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart.
0: Ah, this has been great. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey, thanking you for listening to Super Psych. If you know anyone who might like it, or who might benefit from listening? Share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe.